Hey everybody, this is Chris with the Running Rogue Podcast. I'm here with Steve as always. Hey Steve. Hello world. Today we are doing episode 25 of the Running Rogue Podcast, continuing our series on mental training. This will now be our sixth part. (laughs) (laughs) And who knows how many more we've got coming, but this is our sixth part on the mental training series. You can also check out episodes 6, 11, 13, 18, and 20 going through all of the different components of mental training that we've talked about so far. Today's topic is personal power or this idea of having a warrior mentality. In a lot of ways, it probably comes first if you were to go through this sequentially, but we didn't really think you, you'd you be prepared for it because <laughs> it's this is going to get a little woo-woo, as Steve would say, a little <laughs> philosophical today. So we thought starting there might actually cause you to never listen to us again. So we're coming back to it now that we've laid the foundation with talking about vision, purpose, goals, and some of the tools that we laid out in the last two parts of the series. So again, talking about personal power today as it relates to mental training. Before we dive into that, as always, we're starting with some current events. We wanted to give a quick update on Killian Dornat. We mentioned his his Everest accomplishment climbing from base camp to the peak of Everest and back to advanced base camp in 26 hours. We talked about that on the last podcast. With no oxygen. With no oxygen, no fixed ropes. ropes. Impressive. (laughs) Well, in case that wasn't good enough, he decided to go back out and left from advanced base camp, went back to the summit of Everest and came back to advanced base camp in 17 hours. Just under, I think, a week after he had done the first attempt. So he made another summit attempt, got there, did it in 17 hours. Apparently, that part of the route that he did from advanced ga- base camp and back, the FKT for that was 16 and a half hours by another climber. So he didn't quite get the FKT, but still impressive. And I haven't seen any stats on this, but it, he has to be the only person that's ever summited Everest twice in a week with no oxygen. Has to be. But you, Steve, got a little more context on his first attempt talking to some climbers so what did we learn well what we learned was evidently and i would love for someone to share more about this with us um those of you who might be runners and climbers and and know more about expeditionary stuff um i was talking to mallory brooks who was one of our guests and also allison maxis has been one of our guests and they were both uh following killian and their statements to me were haven't sherpa's been doing this at the same level or better for an extended period of time, but yet because they're not white, they don't get the kind of attention that folks, other folks do. So that kind of made me backpedal. Um, and was, I was like, wow, that's very true. So we're, we're not, we're not trying to say that what Killian did is not still amazing and incredible and to do it twice is even more incredible. But we did get a little more context on the fact that um, there are others who are doing, who have done things like this in the past, but Killian being an ultra runner, running world is now paying attention in ways that they didn't before. So again, if anybody has any more insight on this, what, what really, what these Sherpas have been able to do, um, it w- we would love to hear from you because we're still learning about this interesting world of trail running slash expeditionary FKT, whatever it is that Kill Internet is doing. We're really interested in. So give us a little, give us a little insight. The last article I read on it that was giving a little bit more of the mountaineering perspective said that, you know, this is what happened or at least has been said to have happened, but it still hasn't been verified. His summit attempts or his summit 
completions haven't been verified by the Nepal Mountaineering Association or whoever does that. I actually saw a documentary on this at the Banff Mountain Film Festival a couple of years ago where there's this British woman who lives in Kathmandu who has been the keeper of all the records of everybody who's summited Everest and then some of the surrounding peaks. And basically, after someone summits, they have to go back to this woman in Kathmandu and give her the play-by-play on exactly what happened and share all the evidence they have associated with their attempt. And she's the one that verifies she, that she it's sniffs out the, she because sniffs she out. knows everything about yep. how this plays out. And somehow sitting in Kathmandu has figured this all out and listened to thousands of climbers tell their stories of Everest. So Killian's still going to have to go back to Kathmandu and verify all of this. I wonder if they're going to make him pay double the fee for having ascended twice. Right, right? Exactly. <laughs> sure, so sponsor will pay. Again, impressive result again for Killian. And we'll keep following along and update you as we learn more. Now, next, we've got to talk about the Prefontaine Classic. We'd mentioned this in episode 21 as a, a, a meet to watch out for. It's always Memorial Day weekend and is certainly the greatest U.S. track meet every year, you know, maybe aside from the Olympic trials, if that's happening every four years. But it's at Hayward Field, the mecca for track and field, and it's been going on all the way back to the Prefontaine days, at least in some form. So... It's a big deal, and this year it was stacked. The competition was ridiculous. There's probably too much to talk about right now, but I've got some highlights, and then we can talk about them. The first we've got to mention is Emma Coburn. We've talked about her on this a couple times. We mentioned in episode 21 that she'd be one we'd be watching this track season to see what would happen with her new coach, her fiancé. Joe coaching her after she made the shift from Mark Wetmore at Colorado. She ran a 907 high, basically missing her American record by about a third of a second. So she was nearly under American record pace, and I think only her second meet of the year so far. She ran Doha, and this is now her second meet. So not bad for early season results and almost breaking your American record. So I think she's doing okay. Under Joe's the, not fucking her up. Yeah, that's for not, sure. He hasn't messed it up he yet. He hasn't messed it up yet. <laughs> so, so congrats to Emma and and. That race happened on Friday. I saw. I caught. I caught a couple of the highlights. She got gapped pretty early because that race went out fast. There's a new 18-year-old Kenyan girl, Salafine Chesspol, who, 18 years old, she ran almost world record pace, and her shoe fell off at one point, and she had to put it back on during this race. So she was off the front, and there was a group of East Africans with her that gapped Emma pretty early. So Emma ran that American record almost by herself, which is pretty impressive. But it seems like that's kind of the space that she's in right now. It's almost what she has to do because she can't quite run with the top, top level Kenyans. And, and the Ethiopians seem to have fallen by the wayside. They were really, really in a really good spot about three to four years ago. But they haven't been able to keep up with the the Kenyans finally coming into it on the women's side. It took the women a lot longer to come to this, to it. And um, so she's. I think she's still in that spot where she's got to get one gear further in order to be able to to run with them or she's got to run a little bit outside of her normal style which is to go with them from the front right and survive but i let me tell you folks i coach i ran the steeple myself for four years and beyond and uh coached it for many many years this is not a race you mess around with if you go out and you 
and you fade, um, there are some serious consequences that can occur if you can't keep your stuff yeah. together. F- so potentially face altering consequences. Yes, yes, and 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 injury issues, and there. It's not just a slow fade to the end. It's a. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of other you things that can happen. Hurdle still. Yes, and they're immovable. And well, one thing that was interesting, I watched one of her interviews post race, and she talked about what she and Joe have been focusing on this season, which is more five k. And longer distance training, kind of trying to build her strength again. I guess Mark had had her work in mostly 1500 speed, trying to improve her top end. And she's decided to shift gears, recognizing that she's got limiting returns on that work, knowing that she's just not as fast as some. And in going back to our discussion about why that shift happened, it makes a lot. When you hear that, it makes a lot more sense why she stopped working with that group, because they weren't moving that direction. I mean. Sarah Sutherland, who I coached, is running in that group, and she's a 15-5 girl. But I think they're, I know Sarah's strengths are in the 5K area, and I know that they're probably continuing to work that 15 zone with her because right. they're getting lots of return on that investment. And it's probably that they're not, they're just not going to give her, or she doesn't have the bodies to run with right. to get that done. And with Joe, training with Joe, with him writing it, he's probably towing her along and getting involved in a lot of that work. So it makes a lot more sense to me when you hear that piece that she's working on that 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 phase of training. Yes. The other person to mention from the steeple, another American, finished fifth right behind Emma. Courtney Frericks, she is the collegiate record holder in the steeple, set that last year, graduated last May from New Mexico. She finished second at the Olympic trials, went to the Olympics in Rio, and just ran a PR in 919 right behind Emma, just one year out of college. She's training with Schumacher's group there in in Beaverton with the Nike or uh, Bowerman Track Club. She's one to watch, and I I just hope we can have a Frerichs-Coburn rivalry build as she comes into her own post-collegiately, especially with Schumacher's guidance and what he's done with Evan Jager and and you know others in that group. So she's one to watch. Finished fifth and wouldn't hit most radar screens, but I think she's a name to watch, Courtney Frericks. And as you've watched her, I've watched her throughout her collegiate career. She, she went initially to, um, before she ran for New Mexico, she ran at um, University of Missouri, Kansas City for a number of years. And uh, she and her coach went over to, um, over to New Mexico her senior year. And, uh, you know, she is a she is she is raw dough. I mean, she's gotten a lot of great work with the same coach, but there's a lot there. There's a lot more there out of Courtney Friedrichs, depending on the direction that that Jerry decides to go with her. So I do think you're looking at someone who has the ability to be in that really low nine, you know, nine oh five. I mean, in looking at American record holders, you're looking at, in my opinion, a future American record holder in Courtney and the current American record holder trying to continue to break hers. I think Courtney might be a year away, but maybe we'll get a a, 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 a real competition at the U.S. Championships this year, which would be great to see. It yeah. looked from the result that Stephanie Garcia got. Stephanie is a fighter and she puts herself out there, but she's she's just not got the skill set, unfortunately, that these other two have. So... Um, it'll be interesting to watch them. Courtney versus Emma. We'll see. U.S. champs in late June. Okay, second race I want to mention, women's 1500. This is one where I think on the surface, if you look at the results, you kind of, as an American, are kind of like ho-hum. We had four Americans in the race, finished 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth, led by Brenda Martinez, who finished 6th. Kate Grace, that was 7th. Jenny Simpson and, and Shannon Robery. They were in the 403-404 range, 
So if you just look at the results, to me, it's not impressive. But watching the race and reflecting on it a little bit, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's impressive. But to me, this is just 1,500-meter racing. Sometimes you're in it. Sometimes you're not. This race ended up being a little bit of a mixed bag. They had a pacer. I think everybody thought it was going to go out fast. She was supposed to take him out through the 1,000. And nobody went with the pacer. So it got bunched up. It came, became very tactical through the 800 in 212 which is pretty slow for these these athletes and then it started it's to string. slow it's slow for the top collegiate athletes yeah, honestly so then it so. started to string out at the end and so it kind of became a little bit of a crapshoot and you know k grace did a little bit of too much work early on and faded brendan martinez came from way back to get six and had a really nice finish and then jenny and shannon i think just never got comfortable jenny was fighting on the outside I think she was going to kind of hope that it went out fast and kind of get in line and then move up later. But she got stuck in the pack at the back and then tried to move around, was working too hard. And normally a very tactically sound Jenny Simpson ended up kind of caught out. So as I look at it, I'm not worried about those four. I think they're in, they're uh, all looking really strong. Plus, if you real, you know, you got to realize Kip Yegon, who's a young Kenyan, she split 59 seconds in the last lap to get under four for the 1500 for women, which is just insane. <laughs> I mean, that's a split you might see at the end of a men's race. So, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> right. So, so yeah, on the surface doesn't look great for the American women, but I'm not worried. Well, I, I think I'm not worried either. Um, but I do think you've got to point out Laura Mears race. She, um, that last year, uh, really, in 2016, we were expecting. I I think everyone thought she was going to medal at, at yep. in it. I thought we. I think she actually had a chance to win the gold, the way that she was running, and they just didn't get her peak right for whatever reason, or she just wasn't in the place that she needed to be to see her back and running and changing gears without with those folks. It shows that. Um, the renaissance of American female distance running, especially in the 8 and the 15, that has been coming on since Jenny, really, since Jenny and um, the girl ran for Adidas uh, who drops and falls, right? What's her name? Sorry. <laughs> yes. I know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, sorry. I'm getting <laughs> her name. I'm forgetting <laughs> her name, right? Anyway, they, they started this resurgence of really American middle distance runners cr running at the highest level. But Laura Mears British. What are we, what are we I'm, talking what about? What I'm trying to say is that that has been pulled along. Uh, by, that Now the view the is that athlete. it doesn't matter who you are or what you are. There's not, a, there, there's not sort of a guarantee that because you're Kenyan or Ethiopian that you got the free pass that they seem to be having in the steeple and the five and the ten, and so uh, uh, and I'm. It's great to see. While I think our Americans did not perform to the best of their ability at this race, that there is still this continued competition going on, and it's not just a, an, an end all, an end all, be all Kenyan game or, or Ethiopian game. But if one other one other thing I want to say, crazy to think about, but the women's mile is now turning into a similar kind of racing style that the men's mile is, <laughs> which is super fun. It will be frustrating on occasion. The women, I don't think, will ever turn it into a total jog fest, like like what we saw when Matt, when Matt Centrowitz won the Olympic gold right, medal this last right. year. I don't think they'll ever let it get to that, but it is super fun to see that that's what the mile or the 15 is all about. It's in this weird space where you can't just run all out like you do in the eight, and you can't sit around, you, you, and, you, and, and somebody who's just not aerobically so much further ahead in the five where people can just run away from them. It's this cool, amazing, so what makes the mile 
the really marquee event that it's always been for a hundred plus years. It's, the women's race is turning into that even as, as much, and that's kind of a cool thing too. Anybody can win, basically. Yes, but for me, Brenda running four hundred three off a two twelve first eight—that's pretty impressive. Not very surprising though. Her, she's been running the eights off the chain she's got, she's this year so far. She's been running really well so far. I also have to mention that Kate Grace. Good to see her going up to the 15. I think she'll probably race the 800 for U.S. champs. But her abs are ridiculous. I'm going to put <laughs> a picture of her abs on my vision board <laughs> because I need abs like that to be a strong runner. She's got a ridiculous six-pack. All right, so let's talk men's mile. And you know, you and I had chatted briefly about this. I kind of was poo-pooing the Americans here, which now I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Because Clayton Murphy set a PR, 351. I think it was like a four-second PR for him. Yeah, huge. And, you know, he did awesome in Rio in the eight, but, you know, he was fairly young mm-hmm. uh, post-collegiately. Ben Blankenship sort of made the race, making a move with about 300 to go. He got seventh. So I guess if I think about it now in the context of what I just said for the women, if I give the men the same slack, then I would say, you know, Clayton... And Ben Blankenship had pretty good races as well. The thing you were missing for the men's mile was Matt Centrowitz. Where was he? Dodger, so, Dodger. So, so there was some. There's various rumors <laughs> circulating there. I, I don't know that it, that uh, that I believe any of what's been said. But I've heard you know he had a little injury. He had a virus. I've heard some conspiracy theorists think that maybe he's leaving the Oregon Oregon project to be coached by his dad. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Centro after this. Yeah, I don't have much to say about that because you got to be in it to win it. So fuck him, he didn't wasn't in it, so he <laughs> couldn't win it. But one thing, I watched that race four times um, over the last couple of days. I don't know how the the level of the level that Quemboy and Managoy or however you say his name, I can't say it right. They're they're, they're they they are they're going to make it tough on Matt Centrowitz at the U, at the World Championships. I can tell you that. So yeah. those guys are running at a level that is um, the shiftability, the way they stay tucked in. That that was that was how you run a fast world class mile clinic put on by that that Kenyan group. And yeah. you know, I mean, and, and Vincent Cabet, who's no slouch, gets just the, just get the wheels run off of him. I mean, <laughs> they just blasted him out. And I thought Clayton did as good as he could do. He he ran a really smart race. We can say that for him. Yep. And in the championship races, these things go different. Um, and so I'm bullish on his ability still. And I was really, I agree with you, uh, watching Ben take that race. Um, he continues to be impressive. He reminds me a lot of Iguodur. Um, and I would love to see him move up to the five. I don't don't know that Ben's got that interest, but I know that he moved down in his collegiate career. He was at University of Minnesota, so he moved down to the fifteen. I would love to see Ben Blankenship move up to the five. It would be it would be great. The good news for Centro is, at Worlds in London would be he only had he would only have three Kenyans to race. That's instead true. Of four instead of or five, <laughs> exactly. Because the other thing is the Kenyans got one through four, and then Asbel Kiprop was who, out the back. Who, you know, he's won gold medals and is typically world class, winning these types of races. He finished last because he's 
apparently been dealing with some injury and sickness he's, issues. He's like the he's like Kenya's version of Leo Manzano, he is. right? Like you he don't is. know what he's gonna do. He's gonna he come wins all the wins or, or it's yeah. ugly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so those are worth men- the other thing worth mentioning in the mile is this kid Jakob. I'm gonna Ingebrigtsen. Ingebrigtsen. Yes, from Norway of all places. He ran a 3:58 as a 16-year-old kid to become, at least as far as records show, the youngest sub four miler ever. 16 years old. Plus his brothers, not to be outdone, Heinrich and Philip were also racing. They yep. both ran 3:53. <laughs> one of them finished third in the same heat with his, with Jakob, and then the other one finished a little bit back in in the the A race. But unbelievable trio of brothers there from Norway. Yeah, can you imagine a 4 by 15 in that case? I mean, <laughs> right. that is like, forget it. I don't, only Kenya could compete with them. I don't think anybody else could compete with them. Uh, Norway, uh, uh, you wouldn't expect that, but it, it's amazing when you have three brothers that can run. Uh, the. Uh, I mean, 353 is moving in a mile, so yeah. it's yeah. really impressive. And clearly, the genes are good, so yes. unbelievable. And the coaching, too. Yeah. You know, the one thing that people in Central Texas might know is Heinrich ran for Texas A&M for two shakes of a lamb's tail. I think he mm-hmm. ran for them for one semester, um, and uh, it just didn't work out with the way things played out. He went back home and ended up running at the at you know immediately on the international circuit and was generating some serious cash flow. So, um, but you know, there's a little Central Texas. There connection. you go. Steve's the collegiate athlete savant over there. <laughs> All right. So the next thing I have to mention is not a distance race, but a race that you and I love. Or not a race, but an event that you and I love, which is the triple jump. This wasn't on any radar screens. I don't think they had any coverage on NBC, at least that I saw. But Christian Taylor won it in the fastest, fastest, furthest jump ever in the triple jump on American soil. A Hayward Field record, certainly. And then Will Clay, his arch rival in the triple jump, PR'd not once, but twice and still lost the, you know, the event. So... Pretty impressive. I know we watched these guys at the trials last July, and the triple jump is just a fun event to watch. Nobody really pays attention to it most of the time. But these two guys are competing at the highest level in the world for for the U.S., and they're doing it in a way that's both a rivalry and also a, a, a set of kindred spirits. They both went to University of Florida, so they're both alums from the same school. Yeah, Will Clay transferred from Oklahoma to the University of Florida yep. to be able to train and work with Christian Taylor and also their coach, who the great Dick Booth, who is the greatest, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, triple jump coach in the world. He's just unbelievable, incredible. But they're, uh, you know, they're training partners, they're buddies, but they wa- are going at each other. On, yeah, when it comes to jumping, they're going at each and other. And they're the completely different styles. Christian Taylor is this big old boy. I mean, he is a big, strong... He, he, he's got a finesse game the way he jumps. He's big and strong, but he's got a finesse jump. And Will Clay is a little teeny dude <laughs> who just pulls. He's got a long stride. He pulls his way all the way down the track. And then when he jumps, it's like uh, their styles are so different, but they're going head-to-head. And I can't wait to see them competing at the U.S. Championships and at the World Championships because they're jumping on another level right now. And yeah. they've been at this for a while. I mean, So it's, it's just great to see. So check out your triple jump coverage. And if you've never watched a triple jump, just watch it. It's, it's poetry in motion. It's amazing. The last thing from Pre that I have to mention, I, I hate to end on a down note, is what happened in the men's 5K, sort of a no-show from U.S. athletes, certainly the best U.S. athletes, Ben True, who had been running 
fairly well finished third to last. Chris Derrick dead last. And then Ryan Hill, who has competed very well at this meet in the past from from the Bowman Track Club, DNF'd. What's going on there? I don't know. It's called shit the bed. <laughs> it's still early, right? It's still early. Maybe their training cycle or coming back from altitude. Maybe some of the other things are going on. And, and those guys are all part of the same basic training group. So I don't know. But yeah. I think that um, I think they'll get it righted and they'll get it fixed. It's a, such a weird time to be early, late May for all of these athletes. If you're having coached at this, not quite that level, but relatively close to that. This is the time where you're trying to hedge your bets on getting yourself onto a U.S. team. It's not going to be easy to make, right? It's not going to be an easy team to make. Hedging your bets there and then getting the work done, having good races, getting the work done at the same time. And this is, I know that this time of the year just sits in a weird spot. We see the Americans yeah. run really well in Stanford at the at early May, but then they sort of go away for a little while, take care of their last altitude training breaks or take care of some real, you know, shoring up the weaknesses that they found in their early season races. So I know it's a tough time for Americans where the Kenyans are sort of, this is, I mean, anytime you're in a diamond league race to them, it's all about the money. And the Americans are not really going to be in the mix likely from a diamond league perspective. Even Matt Centrowitz is not going to be chasing those kinds of results, at least at this point, maybe Clayton Murphy will at some point, but not yet. So I get that. Um, you know, one thing I was really happy to see, I mean, the women's 5,000, if you look at it, it looked nearly as bad when you look at where the women placed. But these are young, just out of college, just recently out of college girls, some of them. I mean, Molly Huddle gets eighth place. Now, she's been out for a while. She's 1509. Emily Sisson, who we've talked about on this podcast, she's 1510. Mario Hall, who I coached for a while, she's at 1511. I mean, those are solid. And when you talk about how they're, but they're, Eighth, tenth, and eleventh. Kim Conley, five, fourteen, fifteen, fourteen. I mean, it's pretty impressive where they're sitting. But this is this not very often we see American women in the mix at a Diamond League race. Of course, we're in American soil, so it makes sense of that. But amazing. One other thing, a little shout out to Mario Hall. Amazing bounce back. She had a terrible meet at Stanford. Terrible to bounce back from. I think what was fifteen. 30 or 40, maybe even 50, and jumping back in at 1511. Good to see her getting back. And I think we might get a little. Uh, trying might, to get her on the Trying to get on her on, on the podcast. We'll see. Former UT athlete, so welcome yep. there. But you're right. These these athletes are trying to peak really for August, you know, but enough and to hedging make, their bets enough for, to late, make for, late June. Team for, yeah. for late June, but really peak in August when you can show up at Worlds and hopefully compete. Now, since you mentioned the women's 5K, I mean, it's hard for me to, I, I don't know, I look at those results, I roll my eyes because you got Dababa running video game times at 1420-something all by herself. <laughs> it's like, that's just not real. But I'll save my cynicism for another day. We'll have, she'll give us more opportunity. <laughs> yes. So final couple of notes here before we transition into our topic. I wanted to mention Kara Goucher and Shalane Flanagan both announced they'll be racing, coming back from some injuries, and Kara had another surgery on her knee. Kara announced she's going to be racing June 17th at the Bjorkland Half Marathon, which she raced in 2012. That's the half marathon associated with the Grandma's Marathon in Duluth. So she'll be there. Now she's really, through her social media outlets, Instagram and Facebook, kind of hedged her bets with it, saying this will be a conservative, quote, conservative race effort and, quote, much slower than I ran in 2012. So clearly it's just a way to get out, kind of test her legs a little bit and see where she's at. So Carol will be racing June 17th. 
then Shalane has announced she's going to be coming back to the U.S. 10K Road Champs at the Peachtree 10K in Atlanta, Georgia on July 4th, which is always a huge race with highly competitive Lots both of U.S. and international fields. So yep. that'll be fun to see. And if she picked that one, it tells me that she's feeling pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. And we'll hopefully go get that U.S. Road Champs. That'd be awesome. So that will wrap our intro. Now we're diving into our topic. Again, this is the sixth part in our series. You can check out episodes 6, 11, 13, 18, and 20 if you want to go back. But this one stands on its own. We're talking about personal power, this idea of sort of giving yourself the mentality to be a warrior. And people may already be rolling their eyes. (laughs) Like, where is this going to go? So we'll start with that question, Steve. What does this mean? Where are we going to go with this? All right, so... Maybe one of the things we should talk about is the term personal power, which almost every single time I've ever said this to any athlete that I've worked with, if they didn't have a background in, say, uh, some of the uh, esoteric theories of Carlos Castaneda, they they don't really get it. But perhaps a better way to say it is I think of personal power as how to be the most effective human being you can be. Um, And so it's kind of meta. I mean, it's a really big picture 10,000 foot view um, of what really truly is. So how do you live? How do you operate from a worldview idea that we talked about when you set up your set up your statement of purpose and where you're coming from to how are you going to live that purpose out generally? Because if you can't live it out generally, and you don't have a, a space as a human being because we're human beings first before we're runners. We're men and women. We're Husbands, wives, we're mothers and fathers, we're daughters and sons, we're brothers and sisters, we're other things. And, and we're, we've got, we live in our work worlds, we live in all the other spaces that we do. But yet, this, these ideas that we're going to talk about, they're really about being present. They're really, really about looking at how do you execute the most effective day-to-day living process that you possibly can. And so maybe personal power... It's the way I like to talk about it, but maybe how to be the most effective human being you could be is a better way to say it. So the other thing is, this is really important stuff, people. I mean, this is how you operate. This is your operating system. It's the software you're running on. And we can change it and you can tweak it and you can flex it. But often what we found, what I found is with the athletes that I've been coaching for many, many years is their operating system, their software has been imported from either a family background or their family worldview or where their parents came from. Or it's, um, and usually for many people, that's either extremely positive or extremely negative. You usually see one thing or the other. Or those self-made men and women out there they're cobbling this together on their own on a day-to-day basis um, and, and, and maybe reaching towards their religious faith for some of this stuff or reaching towards some world philosophy. Uh, and so what we're trying to do, or at least what I'm trying to do in this personal power, effective human being module, if you will, or part of the episode that we're talking about here with podcast, it's how can you be the most effective racer you can be and it's first to be the most effective human you can be so that's my long preamble for why i think the concept is important to address so what you're essentially talking about is not just how you approach running but how you approach life because running is just one part of life yeah it is a big part for many of us but as they say food shelter sex 
what are they, whatever they say are our first three most important things that we worry about. So running is a little bit further down the line and personal power addresses those three issues and how you get those three things on a day-to-day basis. Um, we're not, we're not, we're a little more advanced. And so, you know, we're spending a lot of time listening to Donald Trump spout off and misspell whatever word he's trying to make that sounds like coffee or Kofi or Kavati or whatever the hell that word is. But ultimately, like, that's not real stuff. The things that we're going to be talking about today, yes, a little woo-woo and a little big picture and maybe a bit meta, as I like to say. But honestly, I think, folks, if you'll, if you'll stay with us and you can kind of start to wrap your brain around these things, I think we'll get down the road with it. I think it'll help you. I kind of think about it like this. Like, when your eyes open in the morning... It's like, what helmet are you putting on? What armor are you putting on? What are you going to battle with? What mentality? That's what we're talking about. That's a great that analogy. Ap- that applies to Absolutely. running, applies to how you operate in your workspace, your relationships, all those things. And so, yeah, we're going to get a little bit deep on you, but you know, we're not even going to apologize for it. <clears throat> now, as a part of that, embracing this idea of personal power and getting your mind ready to kind of approach life that way you got to take stock you got to be honest with yourself and really understand your strengths and weaknesses which is going to require some introspection that may be difficult so let's talk about that how how should people begin to step through this by looking at themselves first and understanding where they are now so taking stock or strengths and weaknesses so truth is a really hard subject um, and what truth is, uh, we could argue about universal truth. We could argue about um, imper- moral imperatives, about what virtue might be. We could argue a lot of these other things. But ultimately, truth is really a subjective thing, um, in my opinion, at least. I- I'm not a believer that there are some basic universal truths. I'm a guy who doesn't even think there's basic human rights, to be honest with you. But that's another topic for another day. <laughs> but truth really is how you are going to approach what you feel is your personal imperative of what you have to do. And so getting to the base of that, about what you hold as your truth, is really kind of taking stock of who you are as a person. And the best way to do that, or the, or the only way to do that, is the way I, at least that, that I've seen, and I'm not, one only way is probably a little strong, but it's to kind of look at this from the perspective of, what your strengths and your weaknesses are. is getting down to brass tacks about what you do well and what you don't do well. Um, there's a lot of folks, and as I, was, as I was bouncing about yesterday, getting a lot of this information sort of distilled into something that we could actually work with, Chris, I, was, I got on the internet and just start, you know, just tapping in thoughts and ideas to see what Mr. and Mrs. Google said about things, you know? <laughs> and of course, all over there is, all over it is this sort of, how they talk about it in the business world and, and business coaches about should you address your strengths? Should you address your weaknesses? Listen, people, you got to do both. And anybody that's going to espouse one thing or another thing is way off, way off topic, way, way off the bounds. In my opinion, you got to, you got to look at your strengths. You got to look at your weaknesses. As I like to say in the running analogy, we want to work your weaknesses early and your strengths late. But we've got to work both sides of this puzzle and to try to figure out ultimately um, where we are so that we can try to encourage um, positive feedback loops. And I think that that's what taking stock is. It's like, how do you look at the things that you do psychologically, physiologically in your space? 
What are your habits in a sense? And so you have habits or you have tendencies that are a weakness for you that aren't your best. And you have things that you're much, much better at. And each of us, if you, if you take stock and you sit down and you, you, you'd be really critical with yourself, you can come down up with two or three of them um, to really determine where you think you're standing there. Um, but again, these weaknesses or strengths, they are sort of um, looking at where you can get some pull or some benefit from uh, getting philosophical, getting a little bigger picture. And folks, these first ones we're going to talk about, this one's pretty practical. I mean, it sounds a little weird and a little bit, a little bit of a woo space, but it's a lot more practical than some of the other ones we're going to talk about. Um, it's you, you want to start to do anything we can possibly do to try to start to create positive feedback loops. And our weaknesses are constant and consistent stoppers of, po of positive feedback. So you want to look at it and say, so what are my real weaknesses? And this is not as a runner. I'm, I'm talking about my weaknesses as a human being because believe me, whatever your weaknesses are as a human being, they're going to play out in your running. So if you don't want to talk about this from your human being sense and you want to step back and plug it back into the mental training for your running and you just don't want to look at the big picture, talk about it from a running perspective and you'll be able to, and I guarantee you, if you give me a little time, I'll be able to walk you right back into how they function in your day-to-day -day life. One-on-one <laughs> yeah, -on -one with Steve will get you quickly <laughs> to your, your, your humanity. So how do we do that? I mean, what are the, what are the steps you recommend to looking inside and figuring out what you need to work on. So let's start with your weaknesses, right? Because um, that's, as I said, that's where you really want to go. You want to go there early. The first thing you want to do is sort of, you just want to take stock and recognize, recognize and accept that you're seeing these weaknesses accurately and that you're accepting that they're a challenge for you. So it's just sort of like we talked about in many of the other aspects of this mental training protocol, we talked about being real and being honest and being open and, and, and seeing clearly. It's just recognizing and accepting that you're not perfect and it's okay. And, and no one's going to be in that space. But to be the best you, to optimize yourself, you've got to begin to just look and see and accept that that's where you currently are. When I say accept, I'm not saying accept that that's the way you're going to be for the rest of your life. What I'm saying is just recognize it and say that's the starting place that you're going to work from. Um, after that, if you've got the means in terms of, of the financial means or you've got at ready, at ready, ready at hand, Chris, you and I have talked about this many, many times. It happens to be the business that we're in. Um, but finding a coach um, is crucial because you're going to have blind spots. You're going to have places that you're going to see weaknesses as one thing but if you get around a coach, um, and I, pref I, I basically think a running coach, a really good running coach is also um, an incredibly experienced life coach because every coach of runners has to deal with people and in their life. And so honestly, I, I sort of see myself as fulfilling two roles. I do think I could probably make a whole lot more money being a life coach than I could <laughs> make being a running coach. But I'm not interested in it. I like to see my life. I like to see people's lives like run through the gauntlet of running. But find a coach who can help you sort of see the background that you're not seeing that can give you a bigger picture and saying, okay, you see that as a weakness, but maybe something's more of a weakness, or maybe that's not as big a weakness as you think. And something else is, but it'll help you kind of clarify how that plays out. Um, if you don't, if you don't have a coach yet, I wouldn't start with them and say, I was listening to this podcast and they were saying, I should just look at my life and find a coach to help me figure out what my weaknesses are. 
uh, not a whole lot of co- other than me, not a whole lot of coaches are probably going to jump on that. You might too, Chris. Now that you've been down this road mm-hmm. enough, you're you're probably I'm down ready. with that. But you do want to just say, what are my weaknesses as a runner? And then you would be able to sort of patch work that back to how that fits or, or step that well, back. Well, it also to how it requires, fits. I think, as a as a new coach to somebody, you're also getting to know them. So it takes knowing somebody and having maybe some time with a coach before they can really assess some of these things. And certainly early on, they could ask you the hard questions and help you work through the process and make sure you're being honest with yourself. But you also have to have a little bit of a relationship before a coach can say, no, I'm seeing this or you know, you're maybe missing something else. The other thing I would say here is that it seems also that you could find a close friend, a partner maybe, that knows you really well who you're already having deeper conversations with that you could test some of these things with. For sure. Yeah, I agree. I don't know that it has to be a coach, um, but I do know that it, it needs to be done because it's, it's, we have a tendency just as I talked to uh, at first about these are habits. These are things you're doing um, innately, probably subconsciously, certainly unconsciously. So getting another person's perspective at, at minimum is, is, is a crucial piece of this puzzle, in my opinion. One, one time somebody asked me the question, if you could change something about yourself, what would it be? Is that what we're trying to get to here? I, I or think, is it different than that? I think that that is a starting place and maybe another starting place. You know, I said that one starting place is to look at your running and go back, but that's also a great place. You know, this is a question, anybody that's been in a freaking job interview, the, the, the stupidest question they ask you and the hardest question to answer is, what are your weaknesses, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, wait, wait. You can't be honest in a job interview. No, you can't. You can't tell them what your real weaknesses are. So, you know, ultimately, I think what you're looking for is someone who will do that, right? So, yeah, I think that that's that's the case, you know. But one thing, you know, the next point on this is really, really crucial, folks. You, if you're like me, you're going to come up with about 18 weaknesses right off the bat. You got to be really careful here. You can only work on one of these at a time. So if you write 18 of them down... Go through them and try to figure out which one you think is sort of the most, uh, either the, the, the easiest to deal with because it'll give you a positive feedback loop pretty quickly to start working through these challenges. We'll talk about that in a second. Or pick one that's in the middle there or pick the hardest. That's a lot going to deal with people's personality. I don't really have a lot of advice about which weakness to tackle, but just be sure that you're only tackling one at a time. And the reason for that is that you don't want to be um, – It's like we talked about with training. You don't want to start mixing the number of variables that could be coming into play as you're trying to fix something. Because the more variables you have, the harder it is to to sort of determine which is most important. And as we find out with weaknesses, once you start addressing one, you really are starting to get the skill set necessarily to kind of address the other ones. Um, And quickly, it can turn into a positive feedback, feedback space. And, and gain that sort of positive feedback loop that we're looking for. So we're looking for one or two or maybe max three. So one at a time or a few at a time. What do we do with them once we have a, well, once we think we have a good feel for what those are? 
then you you got to make a plan just like we talked about in all the rest of our all, all the rest of our training pieces you have to say okay this is what it is and believe me if i if you asked if somebody else asked you about their weakness chris you'd be able to come really clear with a plan for them it's much harder when we do it for ourselves. We, we have a harder time sort of recognizing the way out of the woods with ourselves, but somebody else's answers aren't going to be authentic and they're not going to be easy for you to, none of this is going to be easy. Let me just say that, but it, it's going to be a lot better if you come up with that plan yourself, even if the plan isn't immediately effective, you'll, if you're willing to work a plan and just start saying, okay, let's say for example, my challenge, my weakness is that when the going gets tough, I tend to fold like a chair, right? When it really starts to hurt, I say, I get a little wonky and I wonder whether I really wanted the thing that I wanted. Did I not want it? So if I say it there, okay, so what really is that? What is that when I, when I start to hurt, I don't want to be there. There's probably that I don't like to hurt. And I think that not hurting is the way I think I'm supposed to get there. But as we all know, generally in life, the hard way is the best way because you've got to get there. Um, so what I might say is how do I make a plan to put myself into more challenging spaces? Or when I'm in a challenging space or in a place where I want to fold, can I name it, recognize it, and say, okay, I see you, and go back to the very beginning. Recognize and accept it. Recognize it's there, accept it, then work through that plan. And that plan is hard for me. You know, Again, this is stuff that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, so I'm giving advice about big level things that I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of answers for each individual, but you should be your own doctor. As that, as it, as that, that great quote says, physician, heal thyself. I mean, person, heal yourself. What that plan is, is probably not so important that what the exact steps of that plan are is that you're working a plan and you're looking and checking to see, are you effective or not? One thing I could highly suggest in this plan is ensure that you're starting to keep a journal if you talk about these things. If you're going to go through your weaknesses, it should start with a cost-benefit analysis, as we talk, as I talk about in the in in, in, in economics. Yes, and <laughs> and sort of go through that as the first steps, and then and then just keep working it and keep writing it down. And you're going to clear quickly and clearly begin to see much more effectively where you can make adjustments. I think another way to phrase the question, as I reflect on it through this conversation, is. If you answer the question, what's holding you back, mm-hmm. whether it be in running, a career, in a relationship, whatever, what's holding you back, then that is another way to kind of dial into this concept of what what are your weaknesses. You, well, let me ask another question. This is kind of off script, but I've been thinking about it recently because you had referenced some literature on strength and weaknesses. And there's some literature, especially in the business world now, that says, don't worry about your weaknesses. Just focus on your strengths because that's more positive and you can't change your weaknesses. So you just focus on your strengths. So my question isn't, I don't really believe that personally. So my question isn't about that, so to speak, but it is, but I do have a personal philosophy that people don't change. They grow, Mm -hmm. but don't change. So there's certain things about you that are kind of fundamental core that are in your DNA. And there's certain things that you can grow, adapt, mold over time. So as you're going through this identifying weaknesses, what if you run up against one of those things that you just think is just you? And how do you know the difference between that and something that you should be working on? Well, then I would challenge the person and say that's probably a strength. But you may have every every one of these things that we talk about has a light and dark to it, right? And a good a, a shadow and a and a bright. And 
and you may find that what you think of as a weakness is really a strength. You're just fi- highlighting on the sort of the dark part of that. So it's like everything has to have a good and a bad, a yin and a yang and an up and a down. It, it, it's just the nature of life. The Tao is real. Okay, folks, well, I, don't, I don't care what you call it by, but it is. It has to have both these sides. And so maybe what you're looking at as a weakness is, is really not one necessarily. It's it's really a strength that you're just focusing sort of on the bad side of it. It sort of brings up the last two points that we've been that we're that we're talking about with this weaknesses, which is number one, you got to be reasonable about what you can expect because weaknesses um, it, it it may be it may be that that's just not something you can change, Chris, but. It will be something that you at least should be able to recognize and shore up. I, I don't ever believe that anybody actually stops. They don't. Very rarely does anybody ever take a weakness and turn it into a strength. It nearly never happens. I, I think it's very, very rare that you see that unless it's Karate Kid or something else, right? It's like usually some storybook movie or, or, or a fairy tale about it. Um, the best we can hope for, which is a huge and amazing result, is to hope to make it a, a zero-sum game and hope to get to the point where it's not necessarily has to turn into a strength, but it's at least not an overt and obvious weakness. Um, but it comes back to this idea at the end, which is you also, no matter what happens, you got to go and be positive. Because if all you're doing is hammering and focusing on this, we, that's why we work our weaknesses early, it's because you can sort of work through it and work through it and work through it. But at some point in time, you just have to say, I can't, if you can't get there, you just have to go positive. In some sense, I like to say, fake it till you make it. Um, say it, say it, say it, and it'll be. It, some, that's, a, that's a little facile and a little bit easy. But you do have to stay in a positive state. You can't go through this process of looking at your weaknesses and then just deciding that you're a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad person. When that person asked me the question, what, do you, what would you change about yourself? I could really only come up with one thing. Which is that I'm awkward in big group social situations, mm-hmm. especially if I don't know anyone. If I know right. people, it's no big deal. If I don't know anyone, I'm awkward because I, one, hate small talk and the menial <laughs> nature of it. But two, I'm also an introvert. And so being around a bunch of social energy like that just makes me anxious and I don't enjoy it. And I'm extremely awkward. And most people who meet me in those settings think I'm an asshole <laughs> because I'm uncomfortable and I look like an asshole. And so it's it's interesting reflecting on that answer now in the context of what in the context of what you just said because that very thing that makes me awkward in social situations like that makes me someone who can really connect with individuals one on one. So just giving a little personal anecdote yeah, I think, there. I I think that that's exactly what we're talking about here. There you're re- as I like you've heard me reference this before it uh, comes from my biblical background sort of growing up in the church it's you're wrestling with the angel and and in that analogy where Jacob was wrestled with the angel he was wrestling with his own issues and his own self and what I'm asking people to do here is to wrestle with your demons there and wrestle with your weaknesses and try to try to determine how you can get on top of it because if you're willing to do that and you're willing to take the time and energy to do it you're going to get some serious return and when you hit the dark night of the soul when you hit that really bad patch in the middle of a race um you're going to know you've got the skill set necessary to take care of 
that. Um, and by if you don't, then a lot of these things shake your core. I mean, I, I know I've talked to athletes when they've gotten done with a hard-fought race that they thought they were completely prepared for, but they hadn't done too much psychological work or, or mental training work. Um, they come out of it shaken in a deep, deep way, metaphysically shaken, um, and they have a hard time getting back on the horse. Um, you know, and so, but you've got to get back on the horse and ask yourself some of these questions, uh, especially this sort of low hanging fruit of, of SWOT analysis slash strengths and weaknesses and determining where you can sit there. I think when you have your weaknesses identified clearly too, and just to have awareness of them, even if you're not able to beat them right away or improve in those areas right away, that awareness over time kind of builds, I don't know if the word is right, but resilience to eventually do something about it. We talked weaknesses, but as you look and address and identify those, you also have to, as you say, be positive and then identify and focus on the strengths as well. What are the tricks on that side of the equation? So one of the things is people will say, you know, it's sort of like, uh, it's, this is, it's, people will say the flip side of what you said about the business stuff about don't ever work on your weaknesses, work on your strengths, right? Yeah, but working on your, I agree, but you got to work both ends. And I think that working both ends requires you to, um, you know, if something, most people who think that they have a strength, um, they really haven't worked their strength because it's intuitive. It's natural. It's what they're good at. They never had to work on it. And because they've never had to work on it, they'll just take it for granted. Um, working your strengths and going through your strengths, writing them down. And I would suggest these five different ways of dealing with it. Um, or is it six, six different ways of dealing with it, Re recognize and accept your strengths, find a coach, talk through that with, look at your strengths one at a time, work a plan with your strengths, be reasonable with them and be positive. It's a whole lot easier to do all of those things with strengths, but many of us don't do those steps. We don't take those steps because we think we're just good at it. If you're good at it, intuitively, naturally, basically, how much better would you be at it if you did it? Just because a guy can shoot a pretty good, got a pretty good stroke, you know, in ba playing basketball, doesn't mean that he can hit 98% of his freaking free throws. You think Steph Curry, his strength is hitting an outside shot, that like a, like a circus shot. But the guy works the circus shot all the time. He continues to work on his strength to be sure and know that his strength is still a strength and that he works there. He probably also works his defense. He already probably works his foot pattern. He probably also works not overreacting to, to not getting the call and other things. If you watch Steph Curry over the last two to three years, as I've watched him pretty closely, I used to hate him because I just thought it was like he's just lucky. Now I watched his improvement in his game. And man, if you can't tell that that guy hasn't continued to work very, very hard on his game. And he's super impressive now to the point where you just expect him to make that shot or to do those crazy things because he's worked that strength and continued to make it that way. So remember, folks, just because it is a strength doesn't mean that you don't have to apply the same amount of 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 attention to it and use those same six math, you know, six steps through to work your your strengths just as much as you work your weaknesses. So before we go to step two, step one, as we just discussed, is sort of stake, take stock, identify your strengths and weaknesses, and start to work on those. Before we go to the second step, it's important to note that the timing for this probably matters at some level. Now, if we're talking generally about life and personal power as a mentality broadly, probably doesn't matter when you start. But if you're going to apply this to your training cycle and you have a, a marathon in six months, 
should probably do this early on, just like we talked about identifying your purpose and creating your vision board and goals early on in a cycle. Yeah, you work your strengths late. You work your weaknesses early. Um, and we do that physiologically. As a coach, when I write my training protocols for my marathoners, I frequently have a lot of 5K work early on. Number one, I know I get a lot of bang for my buck from an efficiency standpoint, but I also know that my athletes are not going to want to, I'm not going to want to work on that too much later on because it's not a facility they have that's easy for them. They, 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 they're not great at it. It hurts. It's painful. It's not a pot. They don't see it so much as a positive feedback loop. And again, I want to remind everybody, all four of these points, these meta points we're talking about, but it's, but also, but especially this one, it's this one is specifically is about creating positive feedback loops. It's about creating spiraling upward mentality and psychology, and hopefully, life goals will get achieved. Life happiness is better because you're building and building and building up. You don't want to go into your biggest. You don't want to go into your your a, a really big job interview talking about all the things you stink at you want to go into the job and if you're thinking about the things that you've done really well that you do really well and you want to focus and highlight your strengths as much as possible and even in that question that we said where people get asked that question in business scenarios what's your weakness you you're supposed to pivot to a strength right you're supposed to take that to pivot to a powerpoint and so that's what we're saying about the timing of this is be sure that you're really focusing mostly on weaknesses early on and then taking these steps and working on them at the end and this is one of those things it's like it's not it's not do this or do your training. I mean, this is do your training and do this. They need to be doing at the same time and it's a great way to start really recognizing how these mental training tools can be dovetailed into your actual physical periodization and training cycle. We're going to talk about that in subsequent uh, podcast, Chris, about how you implement these mental training programs into a periodized plan. But what we're saying here, here is the basic template, the way you want to look at it, which is work on those things you're not so great at early on, maybe halfway through, two thirds of the way through, and then make sure over that last third, the last half of the time frame that you're in focusing on your mental training, that you're really working all your strengths. So step one, take stock, identify those strengths and weaknesses and start working on them. Step two we've laid out here is owning your past. You call it radical responsibility. What does that mean? So this is part of the thing, one of the things that people think I'm crazy about. But I mean, basically, um, we're all victims. All of us, given our natural state, the way that human psychology works, at least in the modern era, I I don't remember my past lives if they existed, but I know in this life we are we are told that's a psychological strategy, or we or we learn quickly that the psycholo- psychological strategy is to continue to talk about um, about how we are not responsible for the thing bad thing that happened to us, and so that trickles down quickly because because it's a strategy of effective psychology, and I will say on occasions in the most distressful scenarios, war. Uh, a tragedy that being in a spot where you have a fall guy or a fall girl for the thing that happens to you can be effective. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that you're absolutely responsible no matter what for everything that happens to you. I'm going to get, I get a lot of grief for this when I tell people this because they say, how in the world can I be responsible if someone plows into me in a car, right? I didn't create, unless you went through the red light in which, yeah, you're going to have to take responsibility whether you like it or not. Um, this is not what the, what the police officer decides who's culpable, who has, the, who has responsibility. It's you stating, this happened. I, something, 
caused this to happen. Whether you're absolutely responsible for the initial cause, you are certainly responsible for any action or reaction that occurs after that happens to you. To do, to think of it otherwise is to be a victim. It is to stay in the space of saying, this happened to me, I'm not responsible. You may not be culpable, right, legally, but you will have to deal with it, even even if you had nothing to do with it, even if you got rear-ended from behind with no idea, even if a lightning bolt from the sky hits you in the head, right? You did not create that. Unless you're standing on top of Enchanted Rock in a thunderstorm, right? Well, maybe you have a little bit there. But regardless, you still have to deal with the fallout of that. And so you are responsible. You're responsible to deal. You're responsible <laughs> to manage. You're responsible to handle. Um, and to give that power away to give that away, to give that, to, to, it is not being, per, not having personal power. It is stating to the universe, I'm a victim. And yes, I understand this is not necessarily a politically correct statement, or, or at least a politically correct sentiment. But folks, it's the law of the jungle. It's the way it works. <laughs> it's the way life happens. Shit happens. This is another way to state having radical responsibility shit happens deal now the flip side of this the third point is you have a choice um you have a responsibility yes but you also have a choice so those who want to say that oh you're just you're just giving you're just telling everybody who had some trauma happen to them that they just have to deal well they do don't they so flip it take that take that coin and flip it to the other side and have the freedom to choose you're creating your future you can't you have to own your past once you own your past you now have an opportunity to create your future and you have the ability to start to look at each one of these decisions or each one of the steps along taking full and radical responsibility as an option and a place for choice because believe me, in the spaces of our universe, in our world, especially in our current world, the thing that humans want, and, I, and my belief is that humans want this thing more than any other thing, no matter what they say. They want freedom. Everyone wants freedom. To be truly free, you have to be radically responsible. We're getting into the woo-woo now. Here's a question on the radical responsibility. Is there an element here? Because taking responsibility is important. I get that. But I also think in order to free yourself to create your own future and ultimately to live on in the present, which we'll talk about as our last point, is there might be an element of forgiveness, forgiving yourself as a part of that. Because, yeah, you have to believe 100% that you control your destiny. But at the same time, if you made a mistake, if you did something stupid, if you caused whatever to happen, you have to let it go a little bit too. It, take responsibility, but also forgive yourself so that you can then move to the future in order to live in the present. What do you think about that? It's so interesting you bring that up because the start of this was sort of talking through issues that I learned um, through reading the works of Carlos Castaneda and actually more importantly a gentleman named Victor Sanchez who basically wrote a practical how to practically apply um, on a day-to-day -day basis the sort of concepts that come from that. 
But the second side of this sort of where I came up with the idea, because because Carlos Castaneda talks about warrior all the time, right? So another gentleman who I have a whole lot of respect for and I've learned a lot from, not personally, but from through reading, is Choyam, Choyam Trungpa, who has, he's a Tibet, he's a, he's, he's passed now, but he was a, an enlightened Tibetan Buddhist from Tibet, and he came up with sort of, he found that Americans, especially as he taught in the West, had a really hard time getting at the concepts that are, are sort of Tibetan Buddhism proper. They're very, it's kind of Catholic. It's got lots of saints and lots of ideas and lots of crazy things going on. They believe in not only reincarnation, but recapitulation, all these kind of rather strange concepts for the Western mind to sort of grasp. So he created another religion, which he called Shambhala, which is basically warrior training. And his very first principle, the initial, initial most important principle that he has, one of which absolutely, utterly changed my life growing up in a strict fundamentalist Christian background where I felt like I was evil, terrible, no good, and I needed a savior to, to die on a cross for me to actually be worthy of being alive. His face first statement is, his first step is, you are good. You must deal and accept the fact that you are already good. If you're already good, which is a huge, huge challenge for the Western mind to address, especially those in the West who have been and who hasn't really been at least rather surfacely or in many of us. I know you are as, as I am, have been really, really sort of stamped by a, a, a religious worldview that states that you're 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 flawed and you need saving. And Choi Trungpa says, basically, you must recognize your good. You must see your good because that's the only way you're going to get out. It's the only way to get out. So for those who are Christians and say, well, that just totally just doesn't jibe with my worldview, you can say, but once you've been in that place, you're good, good, right? I mean, in essence, you're already good. You're made good by. You're made good by. So whether you want to go one way or another doesn't really matter. But now you must live as if and live in the space of being good. And to continue to wallow in this place consistently of I'm not is, again, to play the victim. Well, if you're Choyam Trungpa, there's no space for the victim. It is no time and space for the victim. For Christ, I took care of it, dude. Why are you still a victim? <laughs> move on. That's why, I made this, that's why I made this decision to move into this space. So basically, no matter where you're coming from, you're coming, from the, you're coming to the same place, which is radical responsibility. Take full acceptance of the things that happen to you. You're good. Your choice allows you to continue to act that good out or to be in that space on a day-to-day basis. Don't beat yourself up over it, basically. It's, yes, it's the absolutely the least effective mode of operating as a human is to be a victim um and any anyone who go who has been in a trauma situation and i am not an expert here please folks don't don't get me wrong i'm not telling you that you utilize these methods instead of going and getting um seeing someone if you've had trauma in your life please there but they will eventually be telling you you must accept you must take your life back and you must you must know it's good and you must see you are not a victim and you have to then be responsible for the things that happen to you and then make choices because your ultimate freedom in this world is to choose. So let's get practical because for me, as I reflect on this conversation, it brings back some memories of my old working environment, working in the business consulting world. And we worked a lot of hours. We traveled a lot. I often traveled four days a week, leaving Monday early, coming back Thursday evening, 
And there were a lot of people in that world that had bad family relationships because they were never there. And that's one thing I, the one reason why I got out of that world. But when I was in that world, I would have conversations with people that would say, oh, you know, my wife, my relationship with my wife isn't as good as it could be because I travel four days a week and I'm getting home at eight thirty or nine on a Thursday night. And so it's easy in that environment or any environment where you're having pressure to be a certain way to just be that way as well. But for me, I'm like, that's stupid. Why would I live that way? And yeah, it, it was a given for me that I was going to travel four days a week. But I started saying, look, no, I'm going to leave at three o'clock on Thursday so I can be home by six or seven, have dinner with my wife and having dinner on Thursday with her made all the difference in terms of how the week felt because Mm -hmm. it was like I was there Thursday versus coming, you know, coming back Friday or coming back too late on Thursday and being cranky from the flight. So I refused to be the victim in that context. And I think there's a lot of little examples like that. And of course, big ones as well, where it's like people say it all the time. They say, well, I don't have time to run. I'm too busy at work or I'm too busy with this. It's like, There's a lot of people in Rogue that have crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff going on. Kids <laughs> and jobs and insane commitments that are making it happen because they create space for it. So stop being a victim. I, I if you want the, the short version of this, it could be a shirt you know, the quote on the back of a shirt, you own it. Even if you don't, you own it. Yeah. Whether you, whether you, whether you choose, whether you think you're not, you still own it. It still is. You know, you think about this, it happens at the 18 mile mark in a marathon. Um, it's painful. Usually people are in that position, um, where they're making some critical choices at that moment. Um, they are, they are going to come up, in that ex- experience, if they're already in a victim space, if they're already in a place where they're not going to take responsibility for it, they're going to find reasons not to achieve the thing that they want. Now, you can either look at it from the person. As I said, this these concept, this concept of radical responsibility and the freedom to choose, they are the same coin, folks. So they're just flip. They're just two different sides of it. So you could, you can take rock, radical responsibility. It, it doesn't help you. You still have to, it, it helps you see clearly. Believe me, if you live a life of radical responsibility, you'll see a n- nearly too clearly, and your ability to be an empathetic human being can sometimes be challenging. But I think about it as myself as a coach. I'm a definitely do as I say, not as I do coach, for sure, because I don't do that much running myself, but I did many, many years of it. But I have a tendency sometimes when I look at my athletes from this radical responsibility space that I, ha- I, I tend to not sometimes have the kind of empathy that I need to. But then when I think to tell them that they chose that, that they chose to give in at that moment to the pain and suffering that was there, then not only does it help them, instead of seeing it as, I sucked, I was terrible, I'm a victim, I didn't make that choice. They say, I, I didn't choose that, and all they had to choose was to suffer for five minutes more or two minutes more or three minutes more, and it might have changed. We don't know. We don't know for sure. But in the practical applicability of a marathon, being in a place where you already really responsible for your actions and for what happens to you and that you're willing to see your freedom to choose one way or another. Some of these decisions that happen to people that get to be really tough decisions in a race become significantly easier because these are harder to deal with in the context, like you said, about what choices you make with your job and what choices you make in terms of making the most of the circumstances that you're in. Because 
it's happening to you, how you choose to frame it, look at it, deal with it is truly, truly a choice and a freedom and, and an opportunity because people, the folks that are in a, that, that are, that get thrown into a, a jail and who are, who are in a position of maybe even being a, in a, you know, where they're, they're in one room all by themselves, all by because the, they're, because their, their world does not allow freedom because of political unrest or decisions they made before. They know what it's like not to have freedom. We have so much freedom, but yet we don't concentrate on it so much. And we need to more because it is our, it is our empowerment. It is, it truly empowers you. And if you can see it from this perspective, I think you'll find that you're not only will your life be significantly more volitional and, and you're able to control things a lot better, you'll be happier in your running world. Your running life will become much, much simpler. People tell me all the time because I coach a 5.30 a.m. group, I just can't wake up early. Yeah, I hear that all the time. <laughs> and I'm a, not a morning person in the least, and I can do it so anybody can do yeah, it. And neither so am I. Stop making excuses is ultimately what we're saying. Another thing on this point, before we go to the last one, kind of this two-sided coin of you have to take radical responsibility and then choose to create your own future, because I do think there's an element of other people that have spoken so-called truth into your life that you might be holding on to that you got to let go of. Sally Burgesson from Wazell started this Twitter feed hashtag this past weekend. Maybe it was late last week. It was hashtag they said, and it was a lot about focused on the female form and shit basically that people say about women and their body types and whether they're too big, too small, whatever. And so she started this hashtag that has now gone crazy. So you should check it out. It's hashtag they said on Twitter of basically women, girls, men also sharing a body shaming comments they've heard from other people that clearly they were carrying or they have carried for a long time that shaped their own truth, their own ability to take radical responsibility of their own, over their own mindset and view of themselves. And so I think there's a piece here of also recognizing that I know we're not talking about absolute truth, but you create your own truth. So you have to, as a part of this process of taking radical responsibilities, crowd out other people's truth and bullshit that they've spoken into your life that you might be holding on to that's holding you back. I agree. I, I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's a practical, um, obvious empowerment process. You have to, again, passing through the dark, which is they said, and that impact it had on you to the point where they said becomes an empowerment. Um, that's, that's beautiful. So let's talk about the last step, which is admittedly the most, most amorphous for us. And we're, we're going to admit that we don't have all the answers because it is, I think something that many seek and many talk about, but once you've taken stock, identified your strengths and weaknesses, then accepted your radical responsibility and chosen to make your own future. The last bit is coming back and taking all of that and processing it and then somehow living in the present. Yeah. Not, not living in the past. Obviously, you got to think about the past as a part of this process, but not living in the past, not getting too far ahead of yourself and be present. You also talk about it as sort of Inter eternal present tense for your own life. How do we do that? Well, first, 
I've said this many, many times, and I'm really looking forward to the first person to challenge me on it. And again, I'm not going to say that I'm absolutely correct, but it's something I've been saying repeatedly and over and over again, and yet I haven't had somebody challenge me on it. Is I would love to find someone who is actually in the past <laughs> or experiencing the past, who is in the past. Or another is someone who is actually in the future. You know, we said own your past, create your future. But owning your past is seeing it, recognizing it to move into the present. Creating your future are the things that you're doing currently in this moment right now to have to be in a future place you want to be. You know, the new science is basically questioning this whole idea about time. Is time really linear or is it cyclical? There's a big challenge now in um, not just in sort of the mecha quantum mechanics, physics, uh, but even into really consciousness and how that all functions is that time is not a river as we've talked about it so many times, but it's time is a, it's a swirl in a sense. And so it keeps coming back and back and back. But basically I haven't met anybody in the future <laughs> and I haven't met anybody in the, in the, in, in the past. And yet we spend most human beings when you talk to them are in the present thinking nearly exclusively about one or the other, especially if you're in a trauma situation, you're spending considerable or in a broke heart situation or anything that you're, you're in a space that you're folk, hyper focusing on the past and those sort of entrepreneurs are our current hackers out there the life hack and everything else they're spending extended periods of time in a future that i don't see that i'm not really in because i can only at this point that i've been able to tell in my 47 years on the earth i can only say it from my perspective i have never been in the past and i have never been in the future so why am i spending so much time thinking about either one of those two things if you can think of this, those of you who had an English, who have any of the English background or paid a little bit of attention to how tenses work, you're being in that eternal present tense, try for a little while to just always say where you are right now and not necessarily, I saw her, which is past, or I will see her, which is future, but I'm seeing her. I see you. I it stay in that eternal present tense in a sense and empowerment then then you're controlling the thing that actually exists it's yes owning your past in the present creating your future in the present still keeps us in the present so that's how you actually live that out i don't have much of a way to help you there i'm just a stumbling bumbling, bumbling human fool too um, I know for a fact I'm a fool. I've over the years I've gotten much more comfortable with it, and even now recognize it as sort of a role I play or or, or a space I fill. But I don't have the answers here, folks. I have a, I do have some answers in terms of how many miles a week for an individual to run or or what paces they should operate. But ultimately, in this endeavor, you have to figure that out. And I do know that in an asset that has been in my life, when I think about warriorship. Spending time in my present means I'm, pre I'm effective, I'm much more effective at creating some kind of future that I want to create. A couple of thoughts. One is that I think if you go back to some of the tools we've talked about in, uh, in this series, some of the mental tools around purpose vision board, I do think the more you can set up visual cues in your life that 
remind you of your intention on a daily basis, the more likely you're to have success with this. If you have that vision board somewhere posted visually, if you have your goals somewhere posted visually, not that you're thinking about the future with them, but it sort of reminds you to reset that intention every day when you see those things. So that's one thing I tell people and point to. The other thing is going back to this idea of in the context of a race, I often say you got to run the mile you're in. And that's really hard for people to do. In fact, I had a one-on-one conversation with an athlete who's racing this weekend, a, a marathon. And he asked me the question, what happens if I go too slow in this mile, which I do in the next mile or five miles later. And my answer kept coming back to you, run the mile you're in. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can't go back and change the past. And if you course correct in the present, you're screwed. So you got to just focus on what you can do right now. And so that idea of focusing on what you can do now, and we've talked about it in this podcast, also in the context of worry, Focusing on what you can do now and really practicing that is important. We also talked before we got on the mics that meditation could be a potentially useful tool. Using that as a daily tool, there's some apps that kind of help you do that. You had mentioned one that is kind of helping you through daily meditation set your intention. Yeah, I've got a if if. If there were one life hack, which you, everybody knows that's heard me, I hate the idea of life hacks. I, I found, I stumbled upon through uh, one of my favorite magic podcasts that I listen to all the time because I got a little weird magic thing going on. Mm. Um, and I don't mean sleight of hand. I mean, um, you know, the way human psychology looks at things. Uh, it, it recommended an app called Headspace. And Headspace is a, uh, it's a really cool meditation application where a guy would basically it, it, it suggests 10 days of meditating for 10 minutes a day and he walks you through it he, he, he literally you just put the headphones on or put it on on whatever speaker device you have but make sure you're in a quiet place where you've got some time you know I only ask for 10 minutes doesn't matter really when or when you do it he's got some suggestions on the way to manage that and those who are actually long-term and, and maybe um, much more advanced meditators, there's still a whole lot there for you. There's a free app. It's a free app. The first 10 hour, the first 10 days, I have now done the first 10 days, um, I think maybe like 40 days now. Um, I keep going back to the start, gaining a much greater ability to be in the present. And I'm not, I haven't been 10 straight days, 10, you know, 40 straight days. I've missed days. I haven't been on all the time. But I do think meditation is in an amazing way and one of the most effective tools to this being in the in, in, in terms of learning how to effectively and sort of practically be in the eternal present tense. And so I highly suggest that application for anybody out there as I coach athletes in the process of asking them to take on this ongoing sort of mental training protocol, one of the very first things I'm going to ask them to do is download this application and start listening to it. It's that impactful to me. And I think it sort of sets the framework for how receptive people will be to some of these um, more woo-woo concepts like we <laughs> talked about and, and these sort of meta big picture things. This also underscores the fact that this is a daily practice, a day, you have to, something you have to reset and, and practice daily. And it's probably nothing or something that you'll never be perfect at. 
and I don't think any of us are ever perfectly present because we're there's so many temptations to slide out of the present but you just got to work on it daily and if you keep working on it daily with the context that we talked about in those first three steps just like you do your running get there. I mean nearly every person that's listening to this podcast right now is a daily runner whether you're a four-day five-day six-day or seven-day a week runner doesn't really matter you have now if you're listening to this podcast and listening to us spout off all this stuff and you're at this point now with us 25 25 episodes in with this being the culmination of this current 25th episode and you're still listening you're a daily doer of this habit and adding this other habit will make you a significantly better runner i can promise you to the point where i'm actually now looking at and and contemplating some pretty big hags myself in my running as as i look at it and say this experience of being quiet and listening to myself and finding out what i really want by shutting down the rest of the crazy world has made me realize i have unfinished business here and that i can sort of come to this sport back afresh i don't have to accept it in the water in the space i was i can actually sort of accept my past like and and deal with it <laughs> and look forward to creating a future and it it really truly I, I i absolutely can't recommend that application enough i highly recommend it so point being we're both still working on it too yes so it's okay it's, we all will it's okay i think struggling. the dalai lama is still working <laughs> yeah. on it too <laughs> so there you go that's our four steps for unlocking and owning your personal power to operating in that warrior mentality take stock Take radical responsibility, choose to create your future, and then do your best to live in the present every day. And that wraps episode 25. Amazing. Hopefully they survived the (laughs) woo-woo. Thanks for putting up with us. Thanks for enjoying us. Hopefully, for enjoying this, hopefully you learned something along the way. As always, check us out at our website, roguerunning.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Rogue Running. This is episode 25. And we're out. We'll talk to you next time. See you, people.